Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. The Oregon Sweet Cherry Commission recently sent a letter to Governor Tina Kotek asking her to issue a state disaster declaration for their industry. That is after a glut of cherries from California, Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia all hit the market at the same time. Ian Chandler and Mike Omeg are cherry farmers in the Dalles. Chandler is also the chair of the commission. They join us now to talk about this cherry season and the future of their industry. Ian Chandler and Mike Omeg, welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Ian, I want to start with what made this season such a challenge. Starting a few months back, what was this spring like for you as a cherry grower? As a uh, cherry grower, we dealt with some pretty um, unusual weather in terms of uh, having a late uh, bloom this year. And then all of a sudden, uh, we had hot weather during that bloom, and it caused everything to come on at once. Uh, and it wasn't just uh, in Oregon, it hit the whole pretty much West Coast, um, which caused uh, some pretty severe uh, compression for us. Compression, um, also... what, what does compression mean? Okay, so basically um, how the cherry season or how the cherry deal normally works is you start in California and and you're when you're in the different climate zones, the fruit, the same fruit could potentially be planted in California. It will be earlier than it is in Oregon, for example. As you get farther north, you could pick the same types of cherries all the way up north, but they would hit the market at a different time. Does that make sense? It does. So and, when and, you... and Mike, Omega, am I right that in addition to, say, planting the same variety in different latitudes and having them um, be ripe at different times, that even within an orchard, you might have different varieties, which all of which could ripen on their own schedules over the course of a month or so? Yes, uh, we as cherry growers uh, don't want to pick all of our cherries at the same time. It uh, requires too many people to do that all at once. And so we plant different varieties, some that harvest early, some that harvest in the middle, and some that harvest late. So we can spread that harvest season out over a period of weeks or sometimes months, depending on your location and your size. And uh, that's what we do. And what happened this year is pretty much all the fruit on the West Coast uh, was early and came available at the same time. And that posed a lot of challenges for us in the marketplace. The, the weather that we had in the spring caused that. Am I right that once the cherries, sweet cherries here, once they're ready, it's a kind of race? You just you, If you want to sell them, you have to get them off the tree? Yes, we, we with some varieties, we only have a, um, a window of a few days to get them picked, to have them be at their ideal quality so that the people that are buying our cherries in the store have a good experience eating them. Mike, how long have you been in the cherry business? My family has farmed our lands for five generations. Um, we've had cherries for over 100 years and I came to the farm in, in 2009. Have you ever experienced yourself or heard of an entire West Coast crop all coming online at the same time? No, not in my experience. Huh. 
Ian, what went through your mind when you realized what was happening? Well, uh, first and foremost, um, one of our big concerns is to keep our workforce uh, working. So we were looking for secondary markets for our cherries, whether that was with Rhine or freezer type deals where they get sent for processing. Um, but the, the main goal was just to keep going because just like the, the cherries need to go um, when they're ready, if you can't keep your workforce working, they will also leave or, you know, and then you're you're stuck. Were there even enough workers? Let's say that money weren't an issue, and we haven't talked about that yet. That's a huge part of this. But if all the cherries up and down the West Coast had to be picked at about the same time, were there enough workers to do that? I mean, Ian, did you have your full workforce available or were some of them, say, still in California? We were able to get a full workforce. We did have some individuals that came later than we would have liked because they were still down picking in California. And then once other farms had to stop picking, um, then we had kind of a grapes of wrath type situation where we had almost more workers than we had work for. Hmm. Why did you have to stop picking? The money that we were re- receiving from the uh, packing houses was less than the cost to harvest the fruit. Wow. Well, this is so. Let's let's get to the money now. Before we even get to that part, I mean, how much does it cost to grow cherries uh, and to and to pick them? and to get them to market. Thank you, want to take that one? Yeah, in uh, in general, there's a lot of variables, of course, but in general, it's about 30 cents a pound for us to harvest our cherries. And it's uh, about 50 cents a pound or so for us to uh, grow the cherries. And so just to uh, grow the cherries and pick them is, uh, we're looking at about 80 cents. Okay, and then what in an average year, and increasingly that word, it's less and less helpful, but in the past, how much might you get wholesale um, for your cherries? We, uh, because I like napkin math, we figure we uh, historically have brought in about a dollar. Okay, and, and that leaves I, you 20 cents um, left over, 20 cents of profit. If it costs 80 cents a pound to, to grow and get them picked, you sell them for a dollar, you can get 20 cents a pound. Yeah, that's if you don't have anything go wrong, which the past few years have uh, really, really hurt us. And Ian, what was the price you were looking at this year when everyone's cherries ripened at the same time? So we were looking at, with a day-to-day decision with the packing houses, whether or not they could guarantee us at least getting 30 cents back so that we could continue to pick. And at that point, you're really just picking. You're writing off that you're going to make any profit. You're just really trying to support your workforce and keep them going. Wait, I want to make sure I understand this. 30 cents, so I mean, that that's just, so you're paying, you're getting paid so you can pay somebody to pick the cherry. But you're already out the the fifty cents that you cut per pound that you've already spent to grow them, and there's obviously there's no profit. That's you're still losing money, but you're just you're getting enough money that you can pay a workforce to do something. Right, and uh, because our industry is uh, so reliant on human labor uh, as opposed to mechanization or other things, 
we have to maintain those long-term relationships with uh, with the farm worker. And that means being a dependable place where they can come every year, or in some cases our year-round employees have their income come from the farm. So that is one of our priorities is always to take care of the workforce. But we also are dealing with the same uh, issues like many other industries in terms of inflation um, that's hitting all of our different input costs, whether it's uh, tractors, whether it's the, the labor wages. Um, so it's a tough deal that uh, that margin keeps getting uh, smaller and smaller. Um, but the intent always is to take care of uh, our, our workers first. Ian, did it get to a point where you the price was too low to even be able to pay your workers? So you, you just had to stop picking fully? Yes. Yeah, so on my wife and I's uh, small farm, we farm 35 acres. We had to leave about a third of our fruit hanging on the tree um, because we would we could not afford to pick it and then still pay the workers. So we just had to walk away from that that part of our crop. With the sunk costs that you already had had put in to to grow the cherries uh, and and leaving fruit on the tree, how much are you in the hole that just this year? Well, that's kind of a tricky secret. <laughs> um, I would say that uh, for every dollar that my wife and I put into our uh, operating costs this year, we're going to get about fifty cents back. So we're getting about so we're probably hundred plus thousand dollars in the hole on our 35 acres for our operating costs. And that doesn't include any uh, debt service that uh, we owe on the property that we just uh, uh, purchased this year. Um, so it's gonna, be a, it's gonna be a tough fall. What are you asking for from the governor on behalf of the, the, the Sweet Cherry Commission? I would say we, we don't have unrealistic expectations that Governor Kotek can, you know, wave a magic wand and make everything uh, right with everybody. Um, what we're looking for is just uh, bring attention to the plight of not only the uh, farm owners, but also that this trickles all the way down throughout all parts of our community in terms of uh, how it's going to affect some of the uh, vulnerable populations, which uh, migrant and seasonal farm workers are generally uh, immigrant workers who uh, maybe first generation here uh, in the United States, they're gonna have a rough time. Um, we're also looking for the, uh, if there's a disaster declaration and go to the federal level, that can ha- help with some of the uh, uh, USDA farm um, insurance type uh, programs as well. Hmm. I should just remind folks, if you're just tuning in, we're talking right now about a, a really terrible year for Oregon's cherry growers and what the future of the industry looks like. Ian Chandler is a cherry farmer and co-owner of CE Farm Management in the Dallas. He's also the chair of the Oregon Sweet Cherry Commission. Mike Omeg is a cherry farmer and director of operations at Orchard View in the Dallas. Mike, farmers, obviously, you get into this business or you're born born into this business as a fifth generation person, knowing that, that there are risks, that, that there are going to be better years and worse years. And the hope is that there are going to be more good years and bad years. How do you think about the question of what the public, what society owes you when the bad years come? It's a really good question. When I when I think about uh, when I think about my family business, I I don't believe that society uh, um, owes us anything. Um, what um, what we're asking for as a as an industry and as farmers 
is um, a, a disaster declaration would allow us to gain access to resources that um, are already made available through uh, the USDA uh, to help farmers on the federal level, um, to help farmers that incur uh, a disaster situation such as this. Um, I don't believe in, in private um, profits and uh, public losses. I think that that um, is really a, something that I just, as a citizen, don't think is good. But I do think that um, there is a societal good for the public to ensure continuity in um, in farming and in other businesses and to, to help out when things that are completely out of our control as farmers occur and could uh, take family farms and that have been in generations for five or five, been in business for five generations and shut them down. Hmm. I should note that we reached out to the governor's office about your disaster uh, declaration request and we got this response. The governor recognizes the serious impact of these losses on cherry farmers' incomes. The governor's office and the Oregon Department of Agriculture have been working with the cherry industry and local and federal partners on the ground to see what resources are available for cherry farmers facing losses this harvest season. The governor received the request for a disaster declaration, and her team will be prioritizing this request, including reviewing any options at the federal level that may exist. Ian, how would the situation have been different if we were talking not about a glut, not about all the cherries coming um, online at the same time, but but the opposite? Let's say a freak ice storm taking out most of your crop. How would it be different? Well, there's uh, there's different types of insurance. Um, one of the requests that we put into uh, Governor Kotek is just to try to uh, um, the same standards um, that Washington and California have for their crop insurance, which is how they calculate uh, the production per acre. Um, which so if you have a complete wipeout, they would come and uh, and a crop adjuster would come and take a look at your crop and be like, okay, there are no in fact no cherries um, to pick. And then there's different uh, federal uh, insurance programs that can look at the cherries and be like, okay, you would normally get six tons per acre. So we can, uh, you would get this much insurance money for the the, the crop that wasn't there. Uh, but there's not really provisions, at least in the state of Oregon, that deal with uh, a revenue type of situation, which is what we have here, where you have lots of fruit, it just is not worth any money. Hmm. Mike, I mean, that gets to something that I just can't totally wrap my head around, which is, I mean, this is a market issue to me, not not a, a crop issue. Is there a scenario where this could have been less of a disaster? I mean, a different way that the market could be set up where collectively we could have absorbed, you know, you could have sold and we could have paid for and eaten more cherries. The cherries were there. And, and many of them weren't picked because of the market. Can you imagine a better way to set the market up? Well, I think that uh, I have a different point of view um, because I believe that this market situation um, was created by um, weather events in the spring um, in California, Oregon, and Washington, and clear up into British Columbia. And um, cherries 
as you uh, as we mentioned, are a very perishable crop. They have to be picked. They you you can't store them um, either in the orchard by waiting to harvest or store them in cold storage waiting to get them going. And so um, when uh, when you have a pricing that we receive as farmers is set by supply and demand, and the supply is really high, I see that as a as a monumental task to to overcome to overcome that a retailer that say is buying fruit in the marketplace that they want to stock on their store shelves when there's just a tremendous amount of fruit available. Um, they're going to look for the lowest price so that they can do what's best for their business in the retail industry. And so I'm not sure how a different system could be established. In other words, you just you can't get um, uh, the consumers to, to eat twice as many cherries over the course of a short period uh, uh, to, to, to squeeze all the cherry eating into a much shorter period of time. The, the market can't absorb anything like that well as as our um as the cherry farmers we're price takers we we um receive the price that we're offered in the uh in the marketplace we have very little control over um what the price being sold in the retail market is for consumers I want to turn to the the bigger issues here right now, and, and Ian, it's 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 worth saying that my understanding is that after um, working in cherry orchards in in high school and in, in 1994, you then went to the military and then came back to the industry. And am I right that it was just last year that you and your wife bought your own operation? Uh, it was this spring. Yes, correct. This so, gosh. Um, how do you feel about that decision with this as your first harvest? Well, I've heard quite a bit about that as we went through a pretty straight, stressful harvest. Um, so this this is a beautiful industry to be part of. You have incredible people. You have to be outside, to be working with uh, trees, people, to just see nature take its course. It's a beautiful thing. So, you know, part of it is a, a lifestyle. Um, obviously, if you're going to base your lifestyle on the income off of an orchard, you wanted to make money as well. That's an important, important thing. Um, we have the attitude that, you know, it, it hopefully can't get any worse than this. So there's nowhere to go but up. And we're still, uh, you know, optimistic that uh, things for over the long haul will work out. Problem, though, is that, you know, if you look at the last three years, every single every year of the last three, we've had some sort of extreme weather event that's made things uh, made things tough. And then with the small margins that we're able to uh, make in this day and age, um, we are very fragile, I would say, as an industry um, to these kind of catastrophic market conditions. There's not a whole lot of reserve left over there to, to deal with these type of situations. Hmm. Mike, if if you were um, had the ability to just fully plant new cherry trees today that, that, that could actually, you know, be producing cherries um, next year, would you put in the same ones that you currently have in your orchard? I believe that um, overall, the cherries grown in Oregon are really good quality and that the varieties that we that we utilize are, um, are excellent. Um, 
we are uh, always looking at new varieties and new opportunities to plant. And we plant um, a cherry orchard that uh, is planted this year is going to be in production for the next 25 to 35 years. And so those decisions um, are, ta are not taken lightly as to what variety we plant. But I think we are growing really good varieties of, of cherries now. And I think that the new varieties that are under evaluation and, and are being planted in young orchards today are also just as good. And so I, I think that our variety selection is, is top notch. I, I, the reason I'm asking is just, I mean, based on what, what Ian just said about three years in a row of, of various versions of extremes. And obviously, these are the kinds of extremes with climate change that are only accepted, only expected to, to be more common. And we're not just talking about heat, but also, you know, say some cold snap at, at the wrong time for, for the production of cherries. It, it seems hard to, to get it right in terms of planning ahead for decades when there is so much uncertainty. That's just part of the cherry business. That's part of uh, what we have to manage for. And I think one of the challenges that we've seen with uh, changes in weather and extremes in cold, which in uh, 2022, we actually had snow on top of our blossoms. Six inches of snow fell on our orchards while they were in bloom and the bees should have been doing their work. And so it was like a day in December instead of a, a day in April uh, when you looked outside. It was something that was unprecedented. Um, the previous year we had temperatures 118 degrees, the highest temperature ever recorded in the Dalles since 1893. And then this year we had the latest bloom of our cherries ever because we had a very cool spring. And as soon as the cherries bloomed, it got hot right away. And so one of the challenges our industry faces is that we've developed our systems and our orchards over weather norms that are not occurring lately. And um, that poses a tremendous uh, challenge for us that makes it hard and it jeopardizes the, the cherry industry in Oregon because of our profitability being low already with increasing input costs and labor costs, but our, our price essentially not changing for, um, you know, since 2012, Oregon State University has used the same price in its uh, economics um, literature for the cherry industry. So, I think that we're doing uh, the best that we can in a very challenging situation. Mike, um, was it about five years ago that you made the choice to, to join up with some of your neighbors, neighboring farmers, um, to, to combine forces in a sense? What went into that decision? So um, I uh, was... Um, really eager and loved being an independent farmer, having a family farm with my, my name on the door. But I took notice of changes that were occurring in the apple industry in Washington with small farms um, no longer being able to uh, remain viable. And um, I looked, um, looked ahead and, and said, you know, I don't see a path where I'm able to farm independently on my own uh, and can do this for the next, say, 20, 30 years. 
So I looked at different options and um, one option was not selling out because I absolutely would not do that. Uh, my family and I made that decision right off the bat. And so what we cho chose to do was do like um, six other families have done now since 2016, and that is join the Bailey family, uh, the principal family at Orchard View, and, uh, and be in this together to give ourselves uh, economies of scale and vertical integration. And so we have uh, about six families now that have joined into Orchard View. Four of those families have family members such as me that work here on the farm. And, you know, this year, the, the Orchard View as a business is celebrating our 100 years in business. And so that was a decision that I made because I saw many of my uh, colleagues in Washington that were going down the route of selling their property or um, becoming part of a large investment group backed entity. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be uh, in it with family friends. Hmm. Ian, what what goes through your mind when you hear Mike's story? A story obviously you're very familiar with, but I'm just wondering right. what you think it will take to keep your farm? Well, we're gonna, it's gonna take, like Mike had laid out, we have to make, you know, de deliberate decisions that are gonna, we're gonna live with for the next 25 to 35 years. Um, and we have to um, really evaluate what's the best decision given the rising costs of what we're gonna do. Um, most importantly, you know, I want to shift a little bit. We have to maintain our workforce in our community here. Um, we have incredible professionals in this industry who have years of experience that we we will make this work. I just want to put that out there that this will this is going to work. We're not a we're not the type of industry that's just going to lower our arms and just uh, go quietly into the night. We're going to make this work. Um, we're just going to have to hope that there's less uh, of these extreme years than there are good years, and we're going to have to have more good years and, and just. Uh, you got a living doing this, but it's a profession that we love. Uh, we're supported by a, a community here that is uh, strong and resilient. We have good community uh, partners that are helping out uh, our uh, farm, our agricultural community. We've got good health clinics. We've got good. Uh, we've got good support here. So we're gonna we're gonna get through this. We'll we'll find a way. Ian and Mike, thanks very much, and best of luck to both of you. Thank you. Ian Chandler and Mike Omeg are cherry farmers in the Dalles. Ian is also the chair of the Oregon Sweet Cherry Commission. Tomorrow on the show, the Portland-based Northwest Classical Theater Collaborative brings shows to underserved communities in non-traditional spaces like prisons or homeless shelters. Their new play, Samuel Beckett's Happy Days, is on now at what used to be a Victoria's Secret in Portland's Lloyd Center. We're going to hear about this new production and the theater's overall mission on the next Think Out Loud. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern. 